welcome to Cardinal Insights. In this podcast, we continue our conversation with economic developer Ronnie Bryant. He retired in December after leading the Charlotte region economic development efforts for 14 years. Welcome, Ronnie. What I'm hearing from some of the larger brokerage firms that are out there is that they're having, since Amazon, they're having to train brokers about incentives and they're needing people in-house who understand the incentive programs in their communities and what's available, what's not, where before the broker would have said, yes, you know, we'll introduce you to Ronnie Bryant and he'll be able to explain it to you. Where now the brokerage firms and the real estate services firms are having people in-house uh, because the, the topic is being brought up far well, you, more often. What you're describing there is what we're calling and what we're ex- ac- actually experiencing within the profession is the evolution of the profession and space that the economic development professional used to own. Right. That space is eroding because of brokers and attorneys and accounting firms, others offering a service and getting paid for it. Something that we used, in, like you used the example, they would once call Ronnie Bryan. Well, they're not calling Ronnie Bryan now. Actually, I, I co-chaired a committee in our national association of the challenges to the industry. Right. And that's one of them. And and so the question of incentives has always been asked, to your point. Now others are equipping themselves to handle it where we used to totally work an incentive package through the local entities. Now, either the consultants doing it or they're hiring law firms. And we have several attorneys here in Charlotte who are very astute at working incentives at the state, local level in North and South Carolina. And so is that definitely that definitely has changed. But the incentive itself, it's there are two things that must be in every contract. Number one, there must be a clawback right. a clause. In other words, if the com- company promises- We call that the Chiquita provision. Uh, right. Yeah. If, if a company promises X number of jobs and a total X number of dollars of capital investment over a period of years, and they don't meet that requirement for whatever reason, they have to- either payback or whatever is being distributed is discontinued. And Chiquita is a great example of that. Every dime that the county of Mecklenburg, city of Charlotte, and the state of North Carolina was due back as a result of them not fulfilling that contract was paid back by Chiquita. That's number one. Number two, there must be a but-for clause, which means that if... If it were not for the incentive package, then the community would not get the project. Right. What makes that important is that from the community's perspective, the community, by putting an incentive package on the table, as to your point earlier, if the tax generated over a 10-year period by this particular company would be $10 million, the city city slash state are willing to maybe uh, discount that to where they'll only receive $8 million. And the, the theory is, with the but-for clause, $8 million is better than zero. 
Right. Because if you didn't give them the incentive, you would get nothing. So when you hear elected officials and others say that incentives or taking money from communities or taking money from the state. That's not true. Right. There's no money to take. I've been involved in a number of, usually there have been office deals where you're negotiating the incentives with the state at the same time that you're negotiating the lease. And you had to be very careful about which one you agree to first. Mm-hmm. Because if you sign a lease and then think that you're going to go get incentives You've already made your decision. You made the commitment without knowing. It gets to your but-for clause. That's the but-for clause. That's the but-for clause. And um, that's a very tricky part of of any relocation. Let me ask you a question. You mentioned some very talented people that we have here in Charlotte as far as getting incentives. And these people, I agree with you. We've we've got some some people here who make the incentive game a lot easier to play. and, and, And they're very talented at what they do. How much of getting incentives from North Carolina or from South Carolina or from the city of Charlotte, how much of it is art versus how much of it is completing a form and then sort of following a formula? Well, incentives fall in two two categories. Uh, You have your formula base, and then you have some discretionary dollars. The majority of your incentives are very formula-driven. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of if, if you have the jobs, you have the capital investment, the, the payroll meets the right threshold, right. you run the formula, this is it. There's the, an elected body, whether it's the city council or the Mecklenburg County Commission, if they desire, can sweeten that pot to some degree but only to certain, and really has to be something substantial about the project. Same thing at the state level. It's very formula-based. Now, the state recently passed some legislation that can really open up and give the General Assembly and the government an opportunity to really make a substantial investment uh, in a large company. It's really understanding the system. right. And understanding how to, I don't want to use the word manipulate, but how to interpret the legislation and and use it to. So there's a fair amount of art there to it. Yeah, there's formulas to it, but there's nibbling that happens around the edges. Relationships do matter. And so these people are very important to the process. If you just think you're going to go down to City Hall and put in an application and get the incentives that you would without bringing someone like this on board. Mm That that's probably not going to happen. And I guess there's no real surprise there. I'm kind of curious about the formula. You know, the, a lot of this, like the J-Dig, were, you know, these were formulas that were created at a point in time when we were trying to recruit certain types of industry. Are those formulas we have now, are they outdated? Do they do they need to change or to recruit the kind of industry that we're looking for in the 21st century? Or do we need to even go further with the discretionary you know, pools of capital that we have that the governor or the General Assembly can use? Well, J.D. is a very good program. It's one of North Carolina's strongest. And J.D. might be the only is the job development investment grant. Right. Um, the problem with J.D. is the cap. 
Right. The program itself is a good program. It's a self-funding program. So at least in my opinion and the opinion of others. And most uh, states have something like it, a JV. They have a, they have a mega deal program. Right. But there's no reason to put a cap on it right? because it's self-funding. And and the more JD grants you give, that means more projects that are coming in. The ability to get more discretionary dollars in this political environment is probably not going to happen. And you, within the state of North Carolina, especially, and understand North Carolina is very schizophrenic when it comes to incentives. And that's one of the reasons we have trouble in the marketplace, because nationally we're known to be schizophrenic, where South Carolina has made it very clear to the marketplace that we want to play. And whatever your deal is, bring it to us. We're going to look at it. Right. And I think you see that working through the system now with the uh, the Panthers right. and the potential for their headquarters and practice field move into South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. The welcome so, mat is out. And oh, South Carolina's without a doubt. Yeah, welcome South Carolina to me always feels from an economic development perspective almost like you're dealing with a small town. You know, you go to the mayor, the mayor can make it happen. You know, bada bing, bada bang. North Carolina is far more complex, far more complicated. And I mean, frankly, I think North Carolina has been incredibly successful. And no slam against you, Ronnie. Incredibly successful despite itself when it comes around to economic development. South Carolina has had to work very hard for not just, you know, the past five years, but they've been at it since the 70s when, um, you know, a lot of companies, you know, here in the United States were running from South Carolina. They had a Confederate flag over, you know, their legislative building and they had to go to China. They had to go to Germany. They had to go overseas in order to get companies to invest because the American companies wouldn't do it. Well, I would, from, an, from an incentive perspective, I would just say that the, South, the, the majority, overwhelming majority of your incentive dollars do not originate at the local level. They're at right. the state level. And the South Carolina General Assembly has always been on board with the governor's office right. in an effort to provide a, and their desire to provide incentives. Right. Where in North Carolina, you have this rural-urban split. Right. And if you look at the distribution of incentive dollars over the years, a tremendous amount or a significant percentage of those dollars have gone into the urban area. Right. Charlotte and the Triangle, primarily. But that's where the big projects right. have been. And rural legislators have a problem with that. Right. And so that's what caused the schizophrenic approach to incentives in North Carolina. Let's, let's talk just quickly about mega projects. The Alivo site that used to be the Philip Morris manufacturing facility up between Charlotte and Concord. A phenomenal track, phenomenal buildings that they've just recently scraped and a couple million square feet that they demolished. The owners of those of that asset's gotten very aggressive in making this a you know, a super site destination for probably believe, a great site for an auto manufacturer. In five years, <clears throat> what do you predict that site's going to look like? And what does the local ED folk have to do in order to make that project a success? If you give me a five-year window, yep. it'll probably look just like it looks now. And I say that a mega site, a site that's over... 13,000 square feet 
excuse me, 38,000 acres, excuse me, such as that. Am I, did I say that right? No, I think it's no, 3,000. I think it's around 3,000 acres. It's about 3,000 right. split across the highway. Right. And for you to be a mega site, you have to be over uh, 1,400 acres. If you think about the site in South Carolina where we put GT Tire, right. that particular mega site, that site had been on the market when I came here in 05. And we put, what, GT there maybe three years ago? Yeah, and now South Carolina is the largest tire manufacturing exactly. state in the world. Yeah. But and, and my point in that is it's it's difficult to sit on a site as long as you have to sit on a site right. if you want to keep it a mega site. Got and it. the average private investor, the, the South Carolina site was owned by Springs, and I've, obviously they— you know, they have the resources, they can be patient. Right. The average investor is not going to be that patient. Right. And there's always the the temptation to chop it up into a more a sp- park, a smaller partial. So to your five-year question, it could look like it is now, or it could be cut up into, and you have a lot of smaller companies there because there aren't that many mega projects that happened in this country. There are even fewer now than there were 10 years ago in terms of the rate of major projects. We don't know what's in the owner's mind as far as the future development and whether they want to kind of say, look, if it's 10 years and then we hit the cover off the ball, that's fine. Or whether they want to say, well, we'll just start chopping it up in 100 acre kind of increments and get some momentum with some various industry. But so I hadn't thought about that way, but I guess it could go in either direction. Which economic development group would oversee promoting that? Is that the alliance or would that be Concord or a combination? It would be a combination. It would also include the state of North Carolina. Right. The the state, the um, Cabarrus County Economic Development Office and your regional alliance. And so what kind of things do you think they're going to need to do in order to make that site a, a success? Well, that was one of the sites that we pitched to Amazon. So we have a transportation plan to that site. Right. I don't know what the owners want out of it. It would be listed as a very marketable site. I mean, there aren't many sites in the country of that magnitude with the type of infrastructure that it has, as you're aware, you know, rail, highway infrastructure. You've got a four-lane highway in front of it, and you're 20 minutes from a major central business district. Right. That's unique. Easy to get light rail there. And pardon? It would be easy to get right to extend we, 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 the university, we, we know, show the largest urban university the in America. Site is a, what we pitched that site to one large industrial project that was very interested. And one of the problems was that because of what they were going to put there, they felt it was too close to a residential area. Mm-hmm. That was a concern. And that could be a concern. That's a legitimate concern. That's a legitimate concern. And so that might lean it back towards to being something maybe you could turn it into a very nice research park or some other type of mixed-use office environment. Okay. You're the one who brought up Amazon. I didn't. Yeah, I was going to let it sleep, but, you know, you, you kind of poked that dog. And 
as you kind of look back at Amazon and that whole experience, what lessons do you think the economic developers have, have taken away from that? I have been asked this question many, many times. Well, Ronnie, what would you guys have done different? Based on the information that we had when we put that response together, I don't I don't know what I would have done different, Johnny, in all honesty. And the right. reason one of the problems with a project like that, and I had twenty eight days to get this thing out of the door. I had everybody wanting to Everybody had an idea. Everybody wanted to be involved. My biggest problem was managing the people calling me and emailing me with their ideas. And, you know, you you 10 days into this thing, and that's people want, want you to start over. And no, <laughs> we've made the decision. This is, you got to move forward. We don't have six months to sit around and discuss this and do focus group. There are people in Charlotte right now still very upset with me because I didn't let them in the tent. Well, I'm sorry. I'm very comfortable with the decisions that I make, and and I can live with it. You cannot have a hundred chiefs running a project. You've got to, if you're in charge, you got to act like you're in charge. You got to do what you need to do. And the only reason, if our proposal had not made the cut and Amazon had sat down with us and said, okay, this is why. And if we were clearly less competitive in the areas of competitiveness than the other competition, I would say, well, you know, we probably should not have even, we should not have even uh, applied. But according to what they sent out, in my opinion, and I'll stand on it till I leave this earth, we hit the ball out the park. And until somebody showed me something different that we should have done, but it's easy, you know, to be an armchair quarterback. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but it's very obvious they made decisions based on other criteria than what was in the most of the... What was in the RFP. That's really the big takeaway, is there was an RFP, but sure didn't seem like that was what they were basing the decision. Finally, I will say that, without a doubt... Without a doubt, I think, if you look at some of the cities that were, quote, unquote, questionable cities, made to 20, most of them were capital cities within the states. Hmm. That was an interesting little tidbit. I'm going to switch back to Charlotte. When you look out in the future, let's say 20 years from now, we're both here in Charlotte, and I'm a little bit older, and, and we're looking back. And what do you think this, the future is going to look like for this city? 20 years out. Yeah. I I think the city has the potential. And in all honesty, look at Atlanta. Yeah. Look at Atlanta. We are following, following the track of Atlanta. Interesting. Okay, so— Tell me some details. Like when you look at Atlanta and say, oh, it's going to be us in 20 years. Are you talking about our government and what it looks like? Or are you talking about infrastructure? Are you talking about, you know, what? I don't think government per se, because one of the most significant aspect of Charlotte's, the city of Charlotte's government is the fact that we do not have a strong mayor. 
So I don't think you'll see the kind of. Well, is, is the form. You're not saying we don't. If I allow isn't strong, you're just saying the form of government we have does not exactly. allow the, for right. strong. The mayor, position right? is not a strong mayor right. position. Right. And the mayor has a very influential bully pulpit. Right. But the position itself, for example, like the mayor of Atlanta, has totally a, different. Yeah. We have a strong general manager. And a we have a strong manager. general manager. So politically, we're not following. But from an infrastructure perspective, right. from our attractiveness, the growth of our airport, those are the areas. Our ability and our desire to attract big events here. Mm-hmm. We love big events here. And we will continue to reach out and secure big events. You know, I think the RNC, what makes it so special is that how many communities can boast having both major conventions in their community? Within the same decade. Within the same decade. So we're very special. Yeah. And if we can, if the population growth continues, you know, but we've got some issues. Oh, we got issues. We've we've got to be very cognizant of the of the transportation infrastructure concerns, and I'm talking interior roads. We have to be very concerned about our housing crisis. I think our the affordable housing crisis that we're facing right now, which is not just a Charlotte issue, but it's really changing uh, the quality of life in our region for a lot of people. And I look at our schools as probably the biggest problem. I mean, it is. One of the largest school districts in the country, and you know there there are problems there. I I, I hear you, and I think it's easy for us to look at Atlanta and say, well, that's probably the direction we're heading in. We're very similar to you know we're three hours down the road. I kind of look at Dallas as maybe a city that there's more parallels. You know, it's uh, you know Dallas is far more centralized. It feels more like. The type of city that Charlotte's turning into, and and sometimes I kind of kid around and tell people, yeah, we're Charlotte's a lot like a small Dallas than than an Atlanta. I don't know. Spend some time in Dallas. You know, I'm from Shreveport. I, I don't fully follow the Dallas parallel as much, but but I can respect that. But I would like to challenge you a little bit on the schools. I'm I I pushed back dramatically. Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools is one of the best large districts in this country. Yes, it's large, but when you look at districts as large as ours, we are one of the best performing districts in this country. And yes, we've got our issues. We have a significant issue when it really comes to equality among schools, et cetera. But these are the kind of pains you have with a large district. I think we are very fortunate for that it's a county district instead of a city district. When we studied Charlotte, Mexico, I studied it from That if it was a city, then you would have people fleeing to the county? To the county. For example, you go to Pittsburgh. Uh, So Matthews or Pineville would break away or— Even beyond that, it would be even different than that. When you think about what happened in St. Louis or what happens in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, for example, and where I live— 14 independent school districts within Allegheny County alone. And St. Louis, it was... Same thing. Yeah, even uh, more. All these little independent... And, right. and that's what you would have here. Right. And so by being a county district, when busing came, and I, we, the reason I know I studied this from afar, because everybody was looking at you guys to see how, how it was going to work. I had right. never been to Charlotte Mecklenburg. And learned a lot about your school system. 
And it's really amazing that you've been able to to have some great schools in this district and still uh, maintain the, the quality that you have. Do we have some issues? Without a doubt. And I think we need to get more serious about addressing those issues. I think we're very, I'm very concerned about the resegregation of Charlotte Mecklenburg schools. But I think it would be a terrible mistake for Matthews or Pineville to break off or for Cornelius or Huntersville or Lake Norman to break off and attempt yeah. to break it up. When I worry about the school system here, it's mostly because I just can't imagine how we're going to be able to accommodate all the new families that are moving here. And housing, to me, seems like a solution that you can wrap your head around. But how do you handle so many people coming in from so many different cultures, so many different languages, so many different problems in such a huge school system? And especially one that takes and at least or tries to take integration busing seriously and and take it you know head on and takes it with a great deal of pride as you pointed out I mean we were we were looked to provide leadership around that issue that's why it just seems like the the future challenges of the school system are ones that to me is 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 overwhelming for this community and I can't even begin to to offer a solution I share your concern and I I would hope that our leadership shares your concern also. Yeah. Because the system is growing in some regards. So I want to thank Ronnie very much for being here. And this was a whole lot of fun. And I I appreciate you being here. And and you did it without me giving you an incentive to do it. John? Listen, you're the one who taught me about the but-for clause. (laughs) You need a trained negotiator on on your side. John, it was my pleasure. Really, really enjoyed being here. Thank you. Yeah, you're awesome, Ronnie. And um, we'll have to do this again. And uh, and the best of luck to you with your ongoing efforts. I know you've already gotten very busy, a fair amount of travel with your book and everything else. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do this? Ronnie at rlbryantllc.com or www.rlbryantllc.com. And tell us the name of your book one more time. Driving from the Backseat. Tips for Surviving as a Not-for-Profit CEO, Amazon. Or you can just send me an email at jculbertson at cardinal-partners.com. You can find us on the web at cardinal-partners.com. Or call me, 704-953-5500. You've been listening to the Cardinal Insights Podcast. Podcast.